This is the third and final episode in our short series on media freedom around the world, and if you haven't already, I would urge you just to revisit our previous two episodes, where we examine the state of media freedom and the efforts going into bolstering and protecting it. What impact can public service media organisations have on improving media freedom? In 2020, eight public broadcasters from around the world came together to form the Global Task Force for Public Media, the GTF. It was really uh, an agreement among a uh, few of us that we needed a voice that could respond with flexibility and agility, at really in moments of true need. Its establishment, assisted by the Public Media Alliance, was a recognition of the current situation, when media institutions and media workers face severe threats. It was shocking to know that someone had planned to take my life just for what I represent, as a journalist and as a head of a media company. In this episode, we hear from four people who run these public media institutions and discuss why the GTF is necessary. We need to say what the purpose of public broadcasting is, the benefits of it that come with it, and why people need it. Impartiality, balance in our news coverage is an integral part of what RNZ does, but it is not impartiality without a strong sense of values and the values that support democratic open societies. I'm Harry Locke, and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. Hanna Huana is the CEO of SVT, Swedish Television. Earlier this year, she found herself caught up in the case of a high-profile, politically motivated murder. At the Almedalen Week political forum in July this year, a former member of the neo-Nazi Nordic resistance movement murdered the well-known and respected National Coordinator for Psychiatry in Sweden, Ingmarie Wieselgren, in the middle of the city centre. And the killer was arrested right on the spot. And that was less than 100 metres from where I was participating in a debate in an open public space. And later this fall, the murder investigation revealed that he had two more targets. The leader of the Liberal Centre Party in Sweden, Annie Löv, as a representative of politics, and myself as a representative of media. The man has now been convicted. But during the trial, while the preliminary investigation had revealed that Hannah was an intended victim, she wasn't included in the case. And I was made aware of this threat when colleagues of mine read the preliminary investigation just before this trial started in November. And the prosecutor had decided not to include me as a plaintiff in the case, leaving SVT unaware of the murder threat. And it was, of course, shocking. It was shocking to realise that, that this had actually occurred. And it was shocking to know that someone had planned to take my life just for what I represent as a journalist and as a head of a media company. This example raises several concerns, firstly over the threats which journalists and media workers now find themselves exposed to. This is a strong reminder to us all of what the threats against media can look like, how serious the threats can be, both to journalists and to media executives. This year, 67 journalists and media workers have been killed over the world that we know of, and that's 20 more than last year. And secondly, concerns that threats to journalists aren't taken as seriously as those against politicians or other officials. Why wasn't Hannah included in the trial when she was an intended target? And society needs to take threats and violence against public figures, not least against journalists, very seriously. 
The freedom of journalists to scrutinize and portray all issues in society is fundamental to any democracy and to freedom of expression. No journalist should have to look anxiously over their shoulder when leaving their office, their home, or when they discuss journalism publicly. As we've explored in the past two episodes, there are efforts being made to address this, to take seriously the attacks against journalists and to bolster media freedom. These initiatives range from government-led coalitions united around media freedom to the work of civil society groups holding perpetrators accountable, or the work of media organisations themselves using their platforms to raise awareness of particular issues. The Global Task Force for Public Media is another such initiative, a grouping of eight leaders of major public service media organisations from around the world, united in their belief in the importance of independent public service media to democratic society. United also in their recognition of the threats public media is facing and their responsibility to speak out on instances such as the threat on Hannah's life. In a statement released last week, the chair of the GTF, Catherine Tate, said, The Global Task Force stands in solidarity with our colleague Hannah Juana and with all media professionals who are threatened with violence and attacked for just doing their jobs. We remain unbowed in our commitment to protect public media from those who seek to silence us. Global Task Force is vital in the work to protect public service media and defend media freedom. To shed light on these issues is extremely important. And uh, I myself and SVT, we appreciate a lot the support from the Global Task Force community. The Global Task Force is made up of eight broadcasters. Australia's ABC, the BBC, CBC Radio Canada, France Television, the Korean Broadcasting System, Radio New Zealand, Swedish Television and Germany's ZDF. But what exactly does it do? When does it speak out? And what does it hope to achieve? I discussed this with three members of the GTF in Tokyo at the Public Broadcasters International Conference in November. Chair Catherine Tate, the President and CEO of CBC Radio Canada, who we heard from in the previous episode, David Anderson, the Managing Director of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and Paul Thompson, the CEO of Radio New Zealand. We created the Global Task Force for Public Service Media in 2020. And it was really uh, an agreement among a few of us that we needed a voice for public media that was really focused, that was global, and that could respond with uh, flexibility and agility in really in moments of true need, given the challenges, in particular with respect to uh, uh, safety of journalists around the world. So it was a, it came out of um, meetings that uh, we all have at the Public Media Alliance, and the rest is history. So, so was it, I guess, just a, an increasing concern about the direction of travel in terms of journalist safety and and media freedom for for public media as well? It started with a consensus among the public broadcasters that there was a rising need for a united global voice to respond to threats to journalists. And almost immediately, if you remember, in Czechoslovakia there was an intervention and we were able to publish a statement. Uh, We published an op-ed in Le Monde on uh, the threats to democracy and the the decline in, again, in in the role of journalists as as speaking truth to power. And from there it has really just uh, blossomed in the sense that, unfortunately, 
actually. On a regular basis, there are incidents around the world, whether it's Russia's invasion to the Ukraine and the attack on the um, broadcasting center in Kyiv, uh, where we've been able to, as a group, uh, speak out. And whereas the Public Media Alliance is an organization that does this advocacy work on a constant basis, this small group, we're eight public broadcasters, were able to speak out in a more, I would say, in a more focused way, uh, not on an ad hoc basis, but, uh, but at, at moments where we feel that there needs to be uh, a public statement. And Paul, why is it important that public media organizations themselves and public media leaders are the ones signing the statement. Why is it important that that you're the ones actually speaking out on these issues? It's just the the trust and the relevance of each organisation is a really powerful thing in in our countries. And then if you bring those voices together, that trust and relevance together with the leaders of the eight entities speaking as one on an issue of common concern, it really gets cut through. And I think as public... Uh, media leaders, we need to make the case for freedom of expression. We need to make the case for the value that public broadcasting brings to healthy democracies. We certainly need to make the case for advocating for the safety of our journalists. And yep, we'll do that individually. And then I think the GTF is really a fantastic initiative because we can then do it together with that much more power. And if we don't make the case, who's going to make the case? And frankly, one of the challenges we face is that it's not getting any easier. These problems are actually um, becoming more serious. The world is forming into ideological blocks again. And public media needs to think about our values and be able to reflect those. And as Catherine says, choosing those moments and those issues where we can actually together in a really powerful way unite and champion what we stand for. And in your role as the um, the president of, of PMA as well, you spoke just there about you know the world forming into ideological blocks, and do you see a, a decline of awareness and, and literacy amongst governments, public around the world, in in the value of of public service media? Well, I think we heard today at the at the PBI conference from the director general of the BBC that democracies are no longer are not the dominant form of government in the world and a free media and freedom of expression is a minority in terms of you know the, the countries across the world so i think it's just just wearing my public media alliance hat for a moment we just have to be realistic about that and then in a broad church bring together people with those common values you know without forming a rigid perspective on it we need to bring together those organizations who believe in freedom of expression who support democracy and um, celebrate our identities but also find common ground as as a global movement around public media david turning to you what, what's your perception of the the membership of the gtf what, what does that collection of organizations bring to a global perspective because i think it's fair to say that not every organization has the level of independence as, as these eight organizations do. So how can you, I guess, be a positive arbiter of, of, of what, what you are to organizations which don't perhaps enjoy the freedom that you do? Well, I think we represent uh, those other public media uh, organizations across the world where 
what we're doing is making sure that public interest journalism is the fundamental pillar of democracy uh, around the globe. We're providing the examples where it does actually support what is the best democracies that exist. And you know, we want to support journalism and journalists so they're not persecuted for doing their job. The job that they're doing, fearlessly and bravely, should not be something that they're punished for. So you know, we're in support of that journalism. Uh, we're in support of what the effect of that journalism has in, in certainly our countries, but it is representative of what public broadcasting is globally. If I can just say, a reasonably choreographed selection of public broadcasters in the sense that we wanted to be representative of Europe. We wanted to include the other leaders from, let's just call us the original Commonwealth public broadcasters, but we also wanted to make sure we had a representative, a strong representative of an independent, free uh, public broadcaster from Asia, which is South Korea, KBS, and of course Sweden uh, from the Nordic countries. So the idea was that many groups of other broadcasters include state-run broadcasting entities, and I think that's what you were trying to get at. You know, we really need a, a mechanism and, a, and, and, a, and a flexible, free grouping of organizations that are really truly represent global interests. So that's kind of a key element um, in, in the formation of the Global Task Force. PMA, we form a part of a civil society ecosystem alongside you know, probably the big ones, Reporters Sans Frontières or IPI or CPJ and that. What added value could the GTF add to that ecosystem? Has voices of public media or voices of media organisations been missing from that? I do believe actually that we have been, I don't want to say out of the conversation because that would not be fair, but I think because each of us is so much a public institution, we have become institutionalized in our um, in our behaviors. So we just assumed we would always exist. And it's only been really in the last probably five years, five to ten years with, and it's not just because of political uh, forces or the ideological forces that we've seen. It's technology, it's competition, it's the true reality of the global marketplace that we all live in now. But as a result of that, I think that has required us to step up in a way that perhaps we, it's not been part of our DNA to stand up and really say, put our hands up and say, you know what, public media matters, and it matters more than it's ever mattered before. Now more than ever, you need an informed citizenry from an independent source of media and journalism across the world. And what we're doing is we're already united but we're getting together to, to share that voice across the globe to make sure that everybody hears it from that representation that we have uh, through the GTF. That's what, we're, that's what we're doing. And I think, as I said, now more than ever, we need to say what the purpose of public broadcasting is, the benefits of it that come with it, and why people need it. It can't just be taken for granted anymore. So, so part of that is really challenging um, what is uh, voices and, and actions against um, free and independent media across the globe. Is media freedom an impartial issue? W would you ever be accused of being political by making these statements and, so and putting your name to these issues? Yes, Look, it's um, impartiality, accuracy, balance in our news coverage is an integral part of what RNZ does, what ABC does, what 
um, CBC Radio Canada does, but it is not impartiality without a strong sense of values and the values that support democratic open societies. So I think we'll always have a, a level of confidence in both the PMA and the GTF that we will speak on behalf of freedom of expression with confidence because it's just so pivotal to our countries and our democracies and how we work as public broadcasters. And do you all, I mean, now sit back and feel in, in a good position or are you constantly looking over your shoulder or, or, or feeling the pressures as well? And what, what is your position on the GTF? How does that assist you there? I can speak on behalf of a, a, a relatively small member, well, a small member of the GTF. We really think there are safety in numbers and strength in numbers. So New Zealanders, we do not have these immediate and imminent threats to our mandate or to freedom of expression. But that's not to say that in future it won't happen. And I think it is a really good thing for us to know that if there is an attempt to squeeze us, yes, we'll be able to fight our own corner. Yes, we'll be able to make the case ourselves, but being able to draw on senior colleagues and organisations that are immensely trusted is a very powerful thing. And I think it is a really good, a really good safeguard for us. Each of us has our own realities in our domestic markets. And so what I look to in the relationship with the global task force is if we're dealing with a subject, for example, online harm something that is absolutely uh, a focus of, of CBC Radio-Canada over the last couple of years. We will do the work to, you know, at, in our domestic marketplace to try to address the issue. But then we call upon our colleagues, the Global Task Force, to be able to amplify that. And one of the great examples was the signing of the Brussels Accord. I guess that was last year at the uh, Public Broadcaster uh, International Conference. And that was, an, again, the amplification of an issue and the coming together of, of consensus and like-minded broadcasters allows us to have greater impact. Uh, and, and that then reflects back at home. So that allowed me to get the attention of the public security ministry in Canada and start working with our federal uh, police, which are, which are the RCMP, to be able to start putting real measures in place to address this um, rising tide of online violence. So again, it's, it helps us at home, it helps us globally, and then I say it, it, it has a kind of a halo effect back again um, because it legitimizes some of the issues we all face in our own home territories. And I think, you know, what, what you were all speaking about earlier this morning about collaboration, when you hear that word, you, you perhaps think about content collaboration to begin with. But actually, that, that just shows that collaboration can happen when it comes to issues. And, 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 and you know, you, you, we've been talking about the um, current challenge with Facebook threatening to, to block news in Canada. But, but you can point to the situation in Australia to be able to be robust in the face of that. Just, just a point on the membership. Is that something that, that would be flexible, do you think? Is there any position to, you know, bring people in add people, replace people? I, I don't know. Is, is, there, is that up for debate, do you think? <laughs> it's funny you asked that question. You know, we were really trying to uh, create a nimble uh, or a grouping that had no charter, no terms of reference, no particular rules or regulations. We weren't even supposed to have ever any in-person meetings ever. And this, so this uh, year at PBI in Tokyo was an exception. I think that the idea would be we need to be small. But that doesn't mean we can't rotate off. 
it really is about relevance and I would welcome others to to join us there are criteria I mean we did have a, a, a an informal agreement that we wanted representation, real global representation, because many, you know, there's the Asian Broadcasting Union, there's the European Broadcasting Union. We all are members of different groups, and this was a way that we would be, again, small enough to get things done. The minute you have too many players at the table, it's hard to get sign-off. For anything that we've done, we've had to get immediate sign-off from all eight members. So to grow too large, we don't want to turn into the United Nations. On the other hand, I certainly would hope that we're not rigid. Are we, David? No, I don't think we're rigid. <laughs> so just by way of example, we were talking about, certainly in Australia, we've got an initiative from uh, the Australian government around the Pacific region. So we're talking about a lot of media organisations across the Pacific, Indo-Pacific actually, so those countries. and. Part of the initiative we've been tasked with is how do you build capacity across those Pacific nations? And so this is something we discussed and you know, would be seeking collaboration from both RNZ as well as CBC to actually be involved in how we might actually do that. So by extension, the GTF, I think, is will always work with other public media organisations with regard to making sure that they are sustainable, what the issues are, helping to, to address problems and look towards the future. So yes, we're flexible, I think, uh, but certainly still taking into account those regions that are around every member of the GTF. So interesting because the GTF picks its moments two, three years on, maybe it's spoken up 10 times. Mm -hmm. And at times you can talk on behalf of a public broadcaster who's not a member of the GTF. And if they were a member of the GTF, it would be very hard for the GTF to defend them. So I think in the case of Slovenia mm -hmm. and the Czech Republic, we can actually, with the support of those entities and supporting them and kind of speak on their behalf. So I think that flexibility means that it's not just the eight members who are part of this and I think that does work well. Looking at the Pacific region, is that a space do you think the GTF should maybe be looking to now? It's, it's, it's a region of, of concern perhaps in terms of the way that China is trying to make inroads there. Are, are these the sorts of issues? I mean when it comes to independence and, and impartiality, where, where you think the GTF could, could be helpful? Well, look, I, I think that, well, there's a number of issues there that's growing tension certainly within that region. So the ABC already partners with both CBC and RNZ. Part of the partnership with RNZ is to take ABC content and put it across shortwave radio at the moment to make sure that we can get the right messages out that are impartial and they're accurate and it's the truth through that region. And that's, that's important. I think our involvement here to support public media throughout that region is important when certain governments are coming up for election, they might be under pressure, but to have a free press throughout that region is important and I, I think that's consistent with what the GTF is doing across the globe. So uh, yes, that is, that is but one area that uh, is certainly we've talked about. And finally, where's the direction for the GTF? What, what, what would you like to see come of it. I would be very delighted if we no longer existed because that would mean that all of what Paul has just described was in place and uh, over a greater percentage of the planet. I think Tim Davey said this morning that only 20% of the world population is currently living under democratic uh, rule and that is a great concern. We were born 
as public broadcasting, we were born from those principles that, uh, that Paul describes. So obviously, for the time being, there's a huge need for the Global Task Force. I would say probably it's going to get choppier before it gets smoother. Having said that, you know, I hope that we'll remain flexible. I hope we won't become concretized in rules and regulations because our effectiveness is the ability to move quickly, responsibly, when it matters. And I think that's really what I'll keep my eye on, and I'm sure my colleagues here will do the same. Media freedom is under attack. Over this short series on media freedom, we've examined what those threats look like. Killings, threats of killings, internet censorship, online abuse and harassment. The tools being used to silence the media now are more varied than ever. We've considered the multilateral efforts going into rebuffing these threats and the tireless work of civil society who monitor each attack and seek justice. But something Silvio Chacarro from Article 19 said in the last episode shows how things are changing. I was a journalist myself in the past, and I can tell you 20 years ago, you would have never listened to a podcast like this one, or read an article in a newspaper, or anything related to this issue. There was just no information about threats against media freedom and attacks against journalists. And there was also in this idea that journalists or media, they don't talk about themselves. We are not the news, but yes, we are the news sometimes, and we have also to talk about it. And so I think there is more information than ever, and people are more aware than ever that this is happening. CBC Radio Canada's hashtag not okay, hashtag say as say campaign, which it launched last year in partnership with Canadian private media, is a great example of this. A news organization recognizing an issue, in this example, online threats and abuse towards journalists, and doing something about it, raising awareness amongst the media industry and the wider public, engaging with authorities, seeking real and substantive change. The Global Task Force is another example of this, public media organisations recognising their responsibility to speak up and advocate for those foundational principles which they adhere to. These are impartiality-driven organisations, but as Paul Thompson says, this isn't impartiality without values. And when it is those values which are questioned and threatened, that is when public media needs to speak up. My thanks to Hannah Juaner, Catherine Tate, Paul Thompson and David Anderson for speaking with me for this episode. If you haven't already, do listen to the previous two episodes about the state of media freedom and the efforts being made to bolster it. As ever, thanks to Lucas Thompson, Tom Brazier and Rachel Still for the music. To find out more about the Global Task Force for Public Media or about the Public Media Alliance, you can head to our website publicmediaalliance.org or follow us on Twitter at Public Media PMA or Facebook and LinkedIn at Public Media Alliance. Or to get a weekly dose of public service media news, you can sign up to our newsletter PSM Weekly. For that, go to publicmediaalliance.org forward slash global callout. That's it for 2022, but I'll be back with a new episode in the new year. Thanks for listening.